Welcome everyone to the CEO.Digital show. My name is Craig McCartney, and I'll be your host that's going to guide you through an open exploration of technologies and trends straight from the C-suite. You'll hear insights will help you better deliver results for your company and its stakeholders. We'll be interviewing a range of C-suite executives, those that are creating technology to those that are implementing it to support their businesses. Find out more and stay up to date at ceo.digital. And don't forget to like and subscribe to the show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Today's guest is James Norman, EMEA Health and Life Science Director at Pure Storage. James has spent his entire career in healthcare, working extensively with the NHS, first in finance, and then moving into performance improvement and data collection. With decades behind him, he's led turnaround teams for national hospitals and implemented customer-centric wellness models of care at the NHS. James has also won multiple awards for his data strategies, and all of this was before joining Pure Storage, where he's at currently. James, welcome to the CEO.Digital show. Thank you. It's great to be here, Craig. So I touched on some of your career highlights there, James. Can you tell us in a little bit more detail about the progression and the work that you've been doing up until joining Pure, and then we can tackle what you're getting up to now at Pure Storage? I've spent pretty much all my career working in health in one shape or form. I spent 24 years working in the NHS in various guises, started in finance, believe it or not, then went into service improvement, performance management, and then the last 15 years looking after IT and information systems. So I got quite a rounded and broad experience across the NHS. I also had the opportunity to work not just at hospital and trust level, but also in the centre, working in the Department of Health and regional offices and directorate health and social care. So I got to see it from the strategy side and policy, as well as implementation, which is, uh, is great. I left the NHS eight years ago and joined a private sector organisation, again, working in healthcare. I took on a slightly different role. I worked across the whole of the public sector, which was great experience because it helped me to understand the challenges aren't just unique to the NHS, but actually across public services, you know, in general, it's the same type of issues. They give it different terminology. The NHS is great on its acronyms, but the reality is you start to see common trends no matter what industry you're working in. So that was great for me to do a few years working in there before then taking on a global role for healthcare. My passion has always been healthcare, so it was just a natural drawback into it. And when I joined Pure, the reason that uh, I came across and what attracted me was, you know, Pure were leading around this modern data management strategy, but they were focused on the impact it had on the customer in terms of you know customer benefits not trying to just go out there and sell a piece of tin it was all about what does this mean in terms of outcomes capabilities you know customer satisfaction customer delight was really at the heart of it and that for me is important because when you're engaging with a healthcare organization it's about helping them to transform and do something more efficiently quicker less cost, but actually helping to push the boundaries of care as well. So really exciting time ahead. Thanks, James. And you are an award-winning CIO. Can you tell us 
a little in a little bit more detail just about some of the awards you run uh, all around uh, data management analytics. Yes, yeah, sure. So, I actually won um, CIO award ooh, uh, back in 2011, and then every year I think I seem to have won at least one award of some kind from innovation, thought leadership, data leader, best implementation of IT projects in the NHS. It's great to get that type of recognition. It really is. But the reality is each one of those projects made a big difference to patients and to the operation of the hospital and also to the capabilities of the staff. You know, so that to me is what was great about it. It wasn't the winning award and certainly nothing that I have ever done has been to try and get an award. Thanks, James. Very impressive. So let's move on to what you're doing at Pure at the moment. Uh, hopefully there's a few awards coming up in your future at Pure Storage. But what are you what are you working on at Pure? What's the focus uh, and what are your plans? Yeah, so it's healthcare again, no surprise. <laughs> I've been working across the EMEA region, so Europe and Middle East Africa, with a big focus initially on the UK, Germany, France, going out into Italy, Spain, Belgium, Portugal, basically the countries that speak English that makes it easier for me. However, yeah. that's just the start. So my role is to improve an understanding out in with the customers as to the capabilities that Pure's technology brings and what can actually be delivered on the back of it. You know, the difference that it will make in their organizations. And being a smaller company than some of the big names, the challenge has been that we haven't had the presence in Europe. We have in the US where we started, but really it's getting that understanding that, you know, working with Pure Storage and using our technologies, it can really help to accelerate the transformation that's going on within hospital environments and across whole health economies and regions. So, you know, this isn't focused on one organization, but it actually is how we can bring different organizations together to accelerate the use of data, accelerate the speed at which that data can be captured, analyzed, disseminated, and managed, securing it all, and making it easier for the staff to actually run the underlying infrastructure and focus on what's important, which is delivering better patient outcomes. Yes, agreed, James. Yeah, patients do come first. So let's look at um, the potential of data to transform healthcare. When did you start noticing the potential that that data held? Yeah, so I, I've always been interested in the data side. Many years ago, I used to work in the West Midlands Regional Office of the NHS, and my role was working with the Information Department and the Epidemiology Department. And I then took on the management of epidemiology later on, where we were looking at disease demographics, looking at trends in the information, trying to understand where the patterns were occurring, what was causing these patterns. So I've always had that interest. And then, you know, when I went into performance improvements, I started to use data to understand about efficiencies in the hospital. Where could you make improvements in the ward in terms of discharge, of patient management, even working with the ambulance trusts to understand about hotspots where it would be better to allocate ambulances so that they were nearer to high risk areas. So if there was a patient with 
having a cardiac arrest, but the ambulance could get there quicker. And it actually, you know, working with uh, South Staff's ambulance, as it was at the time, you know, coming up with predictive models to be able to understand what the impact was going to be on the neighbouring trusts at any point in the year. So that the trusts could then start to plan their capacity requirements and staffing requirements. Things like that became really exciting because you were moving beyond just the management and the crunching of data to actually helping the efficiency so that people could cope with peaks and troughs in demand as patients came into A&E or planned elective surgery. And you've got a really good understanding of what the bottlenecks were in the healthcare system. So that's where it all started for me. I can imagine that you ran into a few challenges when you're trying to collect and manage and then utilize that data um, using, you know, the sort of um, legacy systems, I guess, synonymous uh, with NHS, particularly uh, of that time. Yes, yeah, so <laughs> absolutely. Uh, <laughs> and to go back 15 years, you, know, you can imagine how it was even worse. We didn't have the compute power. We didn't have the network set up to capture the data. The NHS were basically capturing over 2,000 different data sets per day. And what I was trying to do in my role, you know, when I first started, was to analyze all those different data sets only for the purpose of checking that they were correct and filled in, you know, before sending them on to the center, NHS and the Department of Health and NHS England for central returns to push out all the national monitoring figures. Then what I started to do is say, well, how can we use this differently? So, so I actually started to build my own capture systems, very basic back then using Access, using Visual Basic and SQL, you know, where we pushed applications out to the various hospitals and got them to fill in data. You know, that helped us to get a better understanding about how they were using the resources, where they invested in the right technologies, where they invested in the right skill mix for different activities that the hostels needed to carry out. How was their waiting list changing? We started to use new tools on the market that helped you to understand the waiting list and help to reshape the way that patients were treated so that you got rid of this, this spike where some patients were waiting you know, 18 months, sometimes two years and beyond. And in then one of my roles, there was a national push to try and drive down waiting lists across the country. So I actually worked with the informatics team that I was chair of over in South Staffs, and we built the system that then became Choose and Book. And this became a national system. We rolled it out to each of the strategic health authorities. And then, you know, after successfully helping to enable patients to book into slots in different hospitals, rather than just be sent to the nearest hospital, but actually giving them a choice, you know, we saw dramatic reductions in the waiting times. And it was adopted, it was taken on by NHS England or the Department of Health as it was at the time, and actually then built in with a private company brought in to make it into an enterprise product that is still in use today, although it's gone through many, many iterations, as you can imagine. That was quite an achievement back then. And at the time of leaving, were you impressed with the sort of level of um, innovation uh, in the way that technology was helping the NHS? Yeah, so I mean, I was there during the National Programme for IT where there was a lot of money put in to try and implement 
a common set of electronic medical record capabilities. And this was all about bringing patient data together. It was about investing in underlying technology. We did see big improvements around things like packs, your picture archive and communications. So this is your imaging, you know, your old x-rays. That okay. was digitized. That was probably one of the biggest successes of the national program. We saw the implementation of the spine, which was a common set of data that every NHS organization could tap into. So you always had up-to-date information about the patient, where they lived, their GP, common things, which we never had before. Again, making a big impact, reducing patient risk and ensuring that details were up-to-date because you couldn't believe how poor the data quality was before because a patient could go into five or six different hospitals on different occasions and they could type in their name slightly different. You know, it could be Peter on one, it could be Peter on another. It could have spelt that wrong, depending on whether the person is used to Peter spelt P-E-T-R-E rather than E-R. Yeah, honestly, simple things like that. And every time it generated a new record for the patient. So first things were the data quality was terrible. We had to do something about that. But then the capabilities to bring the data together was very limited. You know, it took up lots of storage. We had files that were captured that we were having to try and analyze that could take days, you know, weeks to download because of the size of them. Honestly, you would not believe how antiquated the technology was in the past. What we did see, however, is improvements in terms of some national e-auctions, as they were called, to improve the standard of the technologies. So we saw investments on that. That's great. So, yeah, we'll end on a positive note there, which is always good. And then let's look at the sort of next big step for health healthcare, James. What's on the horizon? What are you excited about? What do you predict? Yeah, so we've used predictive analytics in healthcare for quite some time. As I said earlier, one of the things uh, I used to do was use it for understanding demand then started to use it for understanding demographics and changes in disease demographics. As technology has progressed and the cost of computing, the cost of storage and the speed has all accelerated, that's enabled people to start focusing on data and actually building up capabilities, you know, investing in becoming data scientists where they're actually using open source and, you know, off-the-shelf applications to analyze the data at a much deeper level. With the advent of genome sequencing and whole genome sequencing, you know, where we've been able to take a very granular, and I mean incredibly detailed look at the human genome and be able to understand the biomarkers that are causing different diseases, we've been able to then work with pharmaceutical companies and life science research companies to understand what changes need to be made to support improvements in the patient's care and the drug companies have now built drugs on the back of that information that target specific cells and bio, you know, specific genes. Now, all of this is great because we've been seeing this improvement over the years. It's never really become mainstream because we didn't have the technology to really understand which biomarkers made a difference or which genes we needed to change or we didn't have the drugs and the capability to make those changes. And it's only a small percentage that you would actually change anyway. But we've been building up this understanding over the years. 
Now we're seeing masses of compute, masses of, of storage capability, new software capabilities to enable you to bring data together in a way that we haven't been able to before. Analyze that data at speed, because that was the other thing. It used to take so long to analyze the data, but you couldn't use it in day-to-day -day medicine. You know, you could use it for research, but two to three weeks to get an answer really wasn't good enough if you're with the patient and you need some decision support right there and then. So compute and storage has really improved. That's been a big change. The capability to now bring in artificial intelligence to start taking on the analysis, because the amount of data we're capturing is so huge, it's too much for a human to be able to work through. So we're using machine learning to start standardizing data patterns and AI to learn differences in different types to quickly analyze the masses of data and find the areas that need to be focused on. Now, as we move forward, we're going to see a lot more of this become mainstream. We're going to see that being filtered down to hospital as part of day-to-day -day treatment. This isn't to remove the clinician. You know, he's going to have an overriding capability to veto whatever's coming out from the AI, but it will be used to support the decision-making in terms of quickly getting similar information, different patterns in a cancer cell from a pathologist slide, for example, being able to say, well, actually, different reporting has shown that, you know, here are similarities. These have been reported by colleagues and peers elsewhere in the world, quickly allowing that radiologist or pathologist to say, actually, yes, I can see the similarities and that this is what I was thinking myself. That's just confirmed it. And doing so within seconds, rather within days and weeks, which is what you would have had to do in the past. So being able to make a quick decision, bringing in wearables and devices that are capturing data in real time from the patient will now enable that more detailed 24-hour monitoring, moving towards the whole wellness model of care where you're using the data to analyze what's wrong with the patient, but you're getting real-time data to feed how the patient is reacting to different treatments, different pathways of care, different levels of drugs. So, you know, when you prescribe a drug, for example, you know, an antibiotic, you basically give them a dosage, which is the generic, which is safe for the majority. But it doesn't mean that it's actually the right dose for that patient. Now, bringing in a better understanding of the genome and of the patient and all the rest of their medical history and their social environment, you can start to tailor and that becomes the full, you know, personalized tailored medicine that you hear quite often. That's where that capability comes in. It then brings in the social contract with patients where they start to take ownership for their own care. What I mean by that is a responsibility for inputting how they feel. Are they starting to feel out of breath or are they feeling that they've got more energy? Things that technology just can't quite pick up yet so that that can also be captured and analysed. Taking their medication on time and also feeding back if they didn't get a benefit when they took it there, but they did if they missed it by half an hour or an hour to change when to take the medication. Because again, we just say, take it three times a day and you arbitrary take it. You know, Maximising or optimising that you know, is another area. But moving to beyond just what's happening with the medication, we're seeing a lot around you know, the mindset in terms of the patient's 
mental state and by that i mean are you happy are you sad do you feel motivated are you internally driving yourself to get better and i know that sounds well everyone's talked about if you do a lot of exercise it's fine but but actually we're now starting to see companies coming out who are monitoring the level of exercise and the state and how you're feeling to help you to recognize that actually when I was walking up a hill, I was catching, I was getting a higher met, you know, um, exercise rate than just walking the normal route to work. And, you know, taking that slight deviation really made a difference. And by the time I got to work, I actually felt brighter. You know, I felt as if my head was clearer and not foggy in the morning. Then repeating that, studies have shown that actually that makes a massive difference to the patient's capability outcomes after surgery, post-surgery. We're now seeing those studies coming in to support long COVID treatments around uh, managing and monitoring the exercise, working, and exercise could be doing the hoovering, walking upstairs, doesn't mean going out for a jog. Because actually, in some cases, going jogging and doing some weights down the gym can cause more damage. It's all about the individual and understanding the individual. So, but again, capturing that data is critical because you're getting real time, masses and masses, millions of data sets being captured, but you've got to store, you've got to make an understanding, make it sensible and give an output. Now, of course, doing that, you're capturing personal information. You know, this is private to the individual. When you've got millions of data sets coming in, it's critical that you don't have messaging move or get corrupted and get put into the wrong patient record. It's also more important that you don't expose your data to bad cyber gangs and what have you, cyber criminals who are trying to hack into your data sets because medical data is the most valuable out there you know, in the black market. So you've opened up and started to capture all this data, but you've got to protect it as well. So you've increased the risk. So that means there's more onus on the organizations to put the security measures in. And also that onus goes out to suppliers, it goes to infrastructure managers, it goes to the applications, and you know it goes to the developers in terms of how they develop applications moving forward. So all of these things really, you know, they're an evolution from where we've come from, but they're delivering better outcomes, faster outcomes, you know, more complex understanding of the patient's condition and giving richer data and intelligence to the clinician to make a decision. So that, that's where we're probably going to, well, it's where we are now, it's where we're going to continue, and that's going to become bread and butter. At the moment, it's in trials, it's in pockets of the NHS and healthcare around the world. It's going to become the norm. So in another two, three years, it will be the norm. Obviously, yeah. the pandemic as well, we saw changes in the patterns of how patients have been treated with that move out of the hospital environment. So that whole remote care, remote management has become part and parcel of how people expect to be treated. Being able to get a video consultation with a doctor over an app on their smartphone or tablet, you know, these are now becoming the norm as well. And we've seen this rise over the last few years to help with demand on GP services. Now we're seeing it become the norm because actually patients are demanding quicker access to medical services, not just going in to walk in to see a, a, a GP face-to-face, -face, but be able to quickly get some support for a condition they've noticed 
Should it be something they're concerned about? Should they go and see a GP? That reassurance and peace of mind. Thanks, James. Uh, great to get uh, such detailed uh, insight back uh, from that question. So, with your pure storage hats on, are you, you know, all those um, all the elements you, you spoke of now? How is pure storage helping to sort of capture that data? Um, are you supporting it, um, you know, from a security and speed and capture process? We're supporting all of that and yeah. more. So, you know, the great thing about Pure is when Pure started, it went down the all flash, you know, rather than spinning disks, which can break or slow, it went down the all flash, which is instant retrieval of data. And it's specialized in that over the years. You know, it's, it's created more capable flash arrays. It's a software company that manages the data sitting on flash so that you've got quick access and management and security of it. But it also means you can analyze that data. You can create immutable snapshots of it to keep the data safe so that if someone tries to get in there, runs ransomware or tries hacking, you've got safe copies of your data. So we built those technologies in. But we've also built out the ability to scale Flash, which you couldn't do in the past. You know, it wasn't used to it. Its lifespan was short. People kept going back to spinning disks because you could have that for years and put your data on. So we created capabilities that would allow you to scale out your Flash as well. And again, bring the cost down. In fact, we've massively drove the cost down, not just internally, but with our push on Flash, we've seen this global drop in the cost as well. So we've led the way in reducing the cost of providing these technologies. We've also reduced the footprint of these as well. So what would have been six cabinets for a petabyte five years ago is now a box that's what we call three units high. You know, so it's much, much smaller and more capable to put into a hospital than it would have been five years ago. So it's more accessible. But we've also brought out other things like our flash blade technology, which allows multiple connections to the data as well. So if you imagine in a hospital, you know, in the past, you'd get a server for this, a server for that, another server, you'd have a storage array, another storage array, and then you'd have to make copies of that for disaster recovery and backup. So you'd have nine copies of, of each data base, you know, it's in there, not always, but you know, you can see how suddenly you can build up the data. So we've taken that away as well by allowing you to run multiple applications on the same storage array and have multiple systems connecting rather than needing to create separate storage silos for each. So that's reducing the footband, but it's also making it easier for staff to manage this. Because if you see, you think about all the downtime that happens in hospitals it's when the systems go down patients are at risk for that time that the system is not available now for a clinician if they can't access the medical records or they can't see their plans during surgery because everything's gone down they have to hold and put on stop whatever they're doing so you imagine if you're a patient you're actually under the knife you know they've started surgery and suddenly all systems have gone down. They can't see what they were working on. They're working in the blind. The safest thing is, you know, if they can carry on, obviously do so. You know, if they know what they're doing, they know where it is and they don't need any of the technology support. But safest thing is to sew them back up until you can get your information and systems available because it's too high a risk to carry on. Now, obviously, they may pause and wait 
but they cannot keep a patient on the table. So the amount of time that your system is down is increasing the risk to patients. So you've got to make sure that your recovery time is as quick as possible. And there's a trade-off you know, between your recovery point, how far back you go if your system goes down, to the time you recover. And it's always been this fine balance for IT directors to say, well, actually, I can only afford that we go back as far as we need, but it'll take two weeks to get the system back up and running. That's the trade-off. And we say, well, actually, you need that system back up and running within minutes you know, or hours maximum and still have access to all that data. So, and because of our capabilities and being all flash, you know, you're making that ability to do fast recovery, you know, without having to bring things out of tape, spin them up, spend three weeks trying to migrate them across. So we can speed up that capability. We put fail safes in there as well. So actually, you know, we've got the six nines of availability and we have no disruptive upgrades so there's no planned downtime that you have to factor in for replacing the systems every three years will actually depend on the contracts you've taken out with us we have what's called our evergreen subscription and if you take out the gold subscription that will come in every three years and we'll upgrade your controllers we'll make sure you're always on the latest software the latest controllers and we do so without any disruption to service. So it could be your busiest time of the day will come in and do this and nobody will notice. You know, there's no impact on your IT staff. It is the simplest system to manage. So your team don't need to go out and do masses of training, qualifications, specialized just to manage an array drive. They can go and start using this within minutes of getting it up and running. You know, our training is very simple because there's very little that you need to manage. We've automated and brought in the intelligence into our systems to reduce the risk to the hospitals. So I know that was a long-winded way of answering the question, but essentially, you know, we speed up the capabilities. We've made it cheaper over the lifespan of the storage for the NHS to run and manage. We build in upgrades as part of it. So, you know, the NHS and any hostel and any, any organization who's using our infrastructure is always on the latest capability. They're not having to go out and buy new infrastructure. They're not having to go out and do a forklift to an upgrade where they move the data from one system into another, which again, in a hospital environment is clinical risk because it planned downtime. It's the risk the data can become corrupted moving it. From a cyber side, we've built in the security, our safe modes. So we're taking those snapshots and we're always planning for the future. So we've been thinking about AI for a long time. We have the performance to support AI. Meta just announced recently the partnership with NVIDIA, Penguin and Pure Storage for the world's fastest supercomputer because our Pure Arrays, you know, our Flash Blade and our Flash Array have the capability and scale and speed to support the fastest in the world. So, you know, we're getting the credibility from industry as well as us telling people. All of these things come together, but they come together in the same package. You're not buying more software from us. You're not having to take out different levels of capability, mix and match different systems from a portfolio that's 30, 40 different types of infrastructure and computer arrays 
we simplified it all, you know, to make it easier to manage, easier to upgrade, simpler to look after, and cheaper to manage over the lifespan, where you're always getting the latest infrastructure performance software, which reduces the risk of cyber attack and downtime. <laughs> Thanks, James. You know, you make a great guest. I actually had you know, three or four questions lined up uh, before your answer, but I think you covered most of them. So <laughs> thank you for that. So let's move on to data accessibility. I'm keen to find out, are there any current boundaries stopping a transformed data strategy in the healthcare sector right now? Yeah, there's, uh, I mean, governance has been the biggest challenge in all honesty. And by this, this is, you know, I said earlier, the value of medical data is incredible in the black market. So protecting that data and keeping the patient's data safe, secure, to enable that trust with the patient, because you've got to have that trust between the clinician and the patient. But also to do that, you've got to make sure there's no abuse of the data so that you don't have people inappropriately accessing a patient's record. They want to see, they've seen that uh, Joe Bloggs, their neighbor from down the street, went into hospital the other day. I've got access to uh, the medical record. Let me go in because I'm nosy and I'll have a look at their record. You have to protect against that type of thing. So, so that governance has been there for a valid reason. The Caldecott rules, you know, the um, safeguarding, even within the systems themselves, there are audits, capabilities built in to check if anyone has tried to access different things and you have to put in role-based priorities and person-based access roles so that they cannot inappropriately access patients' data unless they're involved in the care. Now, that's always been a challenge. And then how you then use that data outside has been restricted as well because you need to get consent from the patient as to how their data gets used because it's their data not the nhs's so you need to ask each patient can we use your information for research and what type of research how long the rules and regulations the gdpr you've got to make sure that you're governing that data you're securing it and you're not using it for a purpose other than what it was agreed and specified you would use it for and also that if the patient requests it but you get rid of that data and you have to be able to prove that you've got rid of their data out of all your systems. So that's a real challenge. That's been one of the biggest blocks to sharing and analysing that data. Now, we're seeing changes on the back of COVID where governments around the world are saying, well, actually, we've probably been too restrictive in these rights. We've got to safeguard, absolutely priority number one is safeguarding patient data. But how can we make the data accessible for research so that in the event of another pandemic or you know, another variant coming out, we're able to find vaccines and cures, new pathways of care, better understand long COVID. And we can only do that by bringing the data together. So they're now looking at how can we create safe clinical repositories where the data can be utilised not going down to patient data level, so keeping it safe for the patient, but actually accessing outcome data, you know, data or genome data, but cannot be reverse engineered to find out who the patient was. So fully anonymizing and pseudonymizing the data sets, making that available, using things like federated analytics, where you're not actually moving the data around, but you're pushing the algorithms to the data sets. So again, you're creating another safeguard 
for the data. And the ownership is managed by the organization. You can control how the data is used through access permissions by the patient. So again, these are starting to be done, but they have to be changed at a, a policy level and a governance level. And we're seeing that happen now where new changes are made. The health and care bill that's going through at the moment in the UK, for example, is an example of where these changes are being enacted to support that sharing and collaboration and you know, the breakdown between health and the outside world so we can bring pharma, bring life science, bring private organisations to support that intelligence gathering and uh, enablement for better care. So, yeah, hopefully that will change soon, but those have been the real challenges to the date. And in terms of uh, access to healthcare data, how does that inform us going forward? So... Access to healthcare data, believe it or not, different healthcare systems have traditionally not talked to each other. And there's been different standards of data captured, again, that have made it very difficult to bring the data together to analyze it. But it's also meant you've had to transform the data into a different data set from one. So again, in that normalization, it's changed the data set and meant that if you try to validate and back down, you have to go back to the original data to create a check and a balance that actually there's been no corruption along the way, but actually the data is valid, things like that. Also, one of the big challenges we're now seeing, and especially in AI, is bias being brought into the training of algorithms, where you're getting data sets, but because you're able to get data from certain demographics and not other demographics, it's actually skewing the results. And again, it means that if you're trying to create a treatment and a new drug, it's gonna be biased towards the demographics over here. Now, this could be, we've been able to get lots of data from Asia, but we've not been able to get it from the West. Now, the demographics of the patients in each of those regions is slightly different. And we've seen examples in the past working with drug companies where they've come out with new drugs, their test environments, and it's worked perfectly. And then when it's launched, there's been masses of adverse reactions in different demographic groups because they didn't have enough data to test against. So, you know, being able to prevent that is really quite critical. So when we talk about getting access to medical data, how is that changing and how is that shaping the future? It's not just about being able to get access, it's about being able to get the right access to the right medical data on a broader scale as well. Now, being able to capture that data and pull it together is critical. This is where Pure has really come into its own in terms of enabling those different data sets to be pooled and be captured and using different standards available to analyze that data from imaging systems, from database systems, you know, whatever it needs to be, you can run your algorithms, get your intelligence out and get it at speed with the protections that you need in there. And the ability to just plug in and play and drop them into different environments very quickly with minimal management requirements, again, is making a big difference. You know, in the past, you need to have your own IT teams. It would take weeks and months of planning to get mm. infrastructure out. Then you'd have to get all the connections, you know, the rise of broadband and, you know, the speed of broadband has massively increased over the years. That's meaning you can get faster data sets down the pipes. 
You know, with satellite connections, again, you can work across different geographies. You know, you're no longer constrained to just partnering with the hospital down the road and moving data sets. So you're getting national and international data capture capabilities now, but you still got to pull it together. Working with the private cloud and the public cloud providers to enable common platforms for sharing. But of course, in healthcare, not all that data you know, is trusted to go into a cloud environment. So having a hybrid model where you can have a half and half sensitive yeah. data locally, working with the cloud providers. Again, having that flexibility is critical and that's where Pure has really made its name, being able to partner with the cloud providers and enable that capability at a local level so you can develop your own cloud. You don't have to go to a private or public cloud provider, create your own. If you want to have on-premise, again, single management, making it easy to look after that data and pool it all together. These are the challenges that people are facing that we're addressing. Wonderful. Thank you, James. So as we approach the end of the show, I'm just keen to capture some final thoughts from you. We get a few, well, we get hopefully get uh, lots of aspiring CIOs and CTOs listening to this show, but what advice have you got um, for them? Yeah, for a CTO, I always say go with what you know, because you want to know that any technology you're using can be trusted and it will be available and it will deliver the performance. However, having been in that role in the past, I know how blinkered you can get as a CTO where you don't start to look at new technologies coming down because you don't want to risk it. We have always said, work with us and we will give you access to the systems, the demos, seed units, because we don't want you to take that leap of faith. We want you to prove to yourself how our infrastructure can make life easier for you compared to the traditional route. And improve the performance, availability, and security. You know, we put our money where our mouth is in that sense. So for a CTO, be open-minded to new technology, but be thinking about applications for the future and what you need. Don't just look at the here and now, which has always been a challenge. People buy for the problem they've got at the moment, and it doesn't solve the problem they're gonna have in two or three weeks or months or years and they have to go out and buy again. Think about what you're buying and how it's going to evolve to cater for problems, not just now, but that you're going to hit in coming months and years without taking your systems down. That's the CTO. For a CIO, stop thinking about the technology and start thinking about how you're changing the business. Think on the strategy side. Get yourself a decent architect and CTO who can manage the capabilities, but be challenging them in terms of what capabilities you want to bring into the organization. What difference do you want to make to a patient's life in terms of treatment, access, pathways of care, collaboration? Be thinking about how the business as a whole is going to change based on the utilization of technology. But at the same time, always at the back of your mind, having it but that technology has got to be running. It's got to be able to deliver. It's got to be quick to set up. You cannot go back to your IT department and say, right, I'm going to do this and we'll plan it in for the next six months. If it's business critical, you need to be able to do that within days and weeks to get a new capability up and running. So you need to build in that agility 
as well as your thinking about how all these different capabilities are going to come together. Start building different business cases, understand your cost models, but work with your technology team to ensure that when you're going out and buying the technology, it can cater for more than just one type of working. Always be thinking about how it's going to support future business. That was what I used to do. I'd always have a stack of business cases, pre-approved, worked through, I'd refresh, approved by the board, understood by clinicians, built in by them, get the buy-in from the staff, freeing up my time to then look at how the staff were using technology and how we can improve their capabilities. The technology should be invisible to your end users. They don't want to know. They don't care what arrays, what performance. They just want to know when they press the button to turn something on, it's there. And if they need intelligence, they can get it quickly. They don't have to search for it. So think about your staff and make sure your technology can deliver. Great advice uh, to end the show on. Thank you very much, James. Uh, we have a probably a minute left for our quick fire round. So I definitely want to get through some of those questions. Do you have a guilty technology pleasure? Ooh, so I do like my wearables, I, I have to admit. I have worked with a couple of companies over the past who have been pushing the boundaries around capturing data using wearables. So this is real-time monitoring of patient data. And unfortunately, you know, a few of these, they realized the value was in the IP rather than just continuing to build out the capabilities, sold it on. However, that did open up for more companies to come in and start building these. And I don't, you know, I'm not talking about your, your smartwatches and what have you. These are medical devices for um, medical grade that allow proper, undisturbed, unbroken monitoring of the patients where you can get real intelligence. And there are some great companies out there who are building on that data to transform patient care. So those are my guilty ones. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no real cost value because it's all about improving the patient's outcomes it takes time it's yeah. not an immediate hit it's an immediate cost yeah. or a longer term gain but i do believe that you do need to invest in the right technologies to get the benefits over time rather than just this short-term gain thinking yeah and in terms of um you know do you have a essential desk item that you can't live with that I have a big monitor in front of me with a webcam on, which in the last two years has been an absolute lifesaver as I yeah. found that my eyesight is starting to deteriorate from staring at small <laughs> laptops. <laughs> That's probably the biggest thing. Also, my docking station, which I have got countless different devices put into. <laughs> Without that, I would be in spaghetti junction on my desk. So oh, yeah. I'm it. jealous. Yeah. And I've just bought a microphone, but unfortunately, it's not working. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then last question is, how would your family describe what you do? I think I'm an, uh, an anomaly to my family because um, <laughs> my wife is also, she's a nurse. She works in healthcare. So she's frontline. She and I met when I was a CIO many, many, many years ago. So she knows what I do, but she doesn't want to talk about it because she deals with it on a day-to-day -day yeah. basis in, in terms of front care. So when I'm talking about the strategy, she's like, oh, shut up, you know. It's, um, just tell me what you're going to do at a local level because go and talk to the trust I work for because the, the IT is rubbish. You know, this laptop doesn't work and I can never get onto this system. And if you're doing all this great 
stuff, you know, with all these health economies. Why aren't you working locally to sort it all out? I think, well, I don't have a magic bullet, you know, I cannot wave a wand and suddenly go around and fix everyone's IT. It's an education process. I have to work with the different departments. They have legacy applications that they cannot just switch off and change. So it's unfortunately, it's a gradual process in, in healthcare. You know, you've got to move step by step. It takes time and people sometimes become too um, despondent that they think they're not seeing change quick enough. Therefore, change can't be happening. And that's always a challenge for CIOs because a lot of the changes are under hood. You know, they're improving performance, improving availability, improving security. But after a while, when the system stop failing and no one's hacked you and it becomes the norm that things just work, People forget that actually they used to go down every day, but you'd been held to ransom twice last year. The rest of the world is suffering and you're not. Now it's about, well, we'll start to cut your budget because actually we don't need you anymore because everything works. Now, you've got to always be visible in terms of the delivery and the capability. And that's, that's the real challenge. The more efficient you become, the better you become, the more people just take it for granted that things are there and working and forget that it's a lot of work behind the scenes to keep it up and running. Yeah, thank you so much, James. Wonderful answers to all my questions. I've really enjoyed having you on the show. So thank you very much. So ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of another show, this time with James Norman. So thanks again for joining us, James. Thanks, Greg. It's great to be here. If you liked what you heard, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to look at the Pure Storage page on CEO.digital. And that's all for today. Thank you very much.